Oh, my God. 
After 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Wednesday Rosh Chodesh morning at JM and the AM. It's Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av. All the uh, traditional additions for Rosh Chodesh. Yalav Yavo, Half Hallel, Special Torah Reading, Musaf, Baruch Inafshi, and whatever your custom calls for on a Rosh Chodesh morning. It's the start of the nine days. No meat, no wine, uh, but we do have one type of wine, Rabbi Beryl Wine, who, of course, takes over the majority of our spoken word programming during the nine days here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Uh, remember, Artscroll.com is offering all Rabbi Wine titles at 15% off this week uh, with promo code RADIO because of the fact that we partner with Rabbi Wine every year uh, in this format. And uh, don't forget that Rabbi Wine's Foundation has a phone number where you could order his lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, or you can visit Rabbi Wine, RabbiWEIN.com. The series is called The United States and Its Jews. Part 1 is entitled Immigration and Integration. Rabbi Beryl Wine at JM in the AM. The Destiny Foundation is proud to present this series of lectures by Rabbi Beryl Wine. We hope you enjoy. There have been in Jewish history a number of waves of immigration. Jews moving from one country to another. The Jews originally uh, went from Babylonia to North Africa. And then from North Africa they went to Spain. They were in Spain a long time, 800 years. Uh, They were fairly numerous, they were quite influential and wealthy, and then they were expelled from Spain. When they were expelled from Spain, they went all over the world, basically in the Mediterranean basin, but really even to Eastern Europe. The Jews who lived in France were expelled, they moved to Germany, Uh, The Jews in Germany suffered, uh, in the Middle Ages, uh, terrible persecutions. So they continued to move eastward into Eastern Europe. And that was the situation uh, pretty much until the 18th century. A new continent was discovered, the American continent. And uh, the original settlers who came to to what later would be the United States and Canada were uh, originally Dutch, French, and then eventually the majority were English. Uh, In colonial times, the early uh, 1700s, there were practically no Jews 
in the American colonies. There were Jews who came from the West Indies, the Caribbean, and they came because of business. They were traders, they were merchants, they were engaged in the sugar trade and other things. And those Jews uh, eventually settled on the southeastern coast of the United States. So they were, there was a Jewish community in Charleston, South Carolina, in Savannah, Georgia, in Jacksonville, Florida. But there were no substantial Jewish communities. They were interesting people. Uh, research has shown us that, for instance, Alexander Hamilton, the first uh, Secretary of the Treasury of the United States, and whose picture appears on its currency, uh, was descended from uh, Jews in Jamaica, though he himself uh, never was Jewish. There also were Jews who came to New York. Those were Dutch Jews who worked for the Dutch East India Company. New York, for a period of time, was governed by Holland. And uh, Peter Stuyvesant was the governor of New York. And he was very anti-Jewish. And he attempted to ban the Jews from living in New York. <clears throat> Since the Dutch East India Company was heavily financed by Jewish financiers, uh, they saw to it that he was removed from office. And uh, even though New York City till today has Dutch origins, you know, Harlem was a Dutch name, uh, the Van Wyck Expressway, which uh, is everything but. And uh, other uh, remembrances of uh, Dutch presence in the country, it was the English that took over. And as the colonies developed, uh, by the middle of the 18th century, uh, there was a trickling of Jews who came to settle in the United States, overwhelmingly Sephardic Jews who were merchants and traders, again, connected to the West Indies and connected to the trading centers in Europe, London and Amsterdam. But there was no major Jewish substance, major Jewish community. Now, there was, these Jews established synagogues and they established cemeteries in the heart of New York is an old Jewish cemetery from the 1700s. Just to show you how uh, sensitive or insensitive, uh, it's located in a uh, very, very uh, desirable area. So there was a developer that proposed that he was going to build a high-rise over the cemetery and he would raise the high rise 
so that it wasn't direct, so there was space between the cemetery and between where the building began. And uh, he was opposed by the Landmark Commission, uh, but the Jewish community in New York thought it was a pretty good idea. It never happened. But uh, that's one of the landmarks of Jewish presence in New York in colonial times. 1776 is the Declaration of Independence. Uh, the colonies break off from England after a long and bitter war. Uh, the United States of America comes into being. Now, the Jews who lived during the Revolutionary War, 50% of them were patriots, so to speak, on the side of the Americans. 50% of them were loyalists who were on the side of England. After the war was over, uh, the American patriots forced all the loyalists out of the country. Many went to Canada. Uh, but most went back to England, and uh, there was a very small Jewish community. Now, the Jews always wanted to portray themselves as patriots, uh, so therefore they uh, fostered a legend about Chaim Solomon, who was a Sephardic Jew, and that he somehow bankrolled Washington's army. And there's a statue to that effect of Washington and Solomon. And the Jews always were happy with it because it proved that they were on the winning side. But again, you have a very small Jewish community, Sephardic. You have the Spanish-Portuguese congregation in New York. But uh, there's no major Jewish presence. Since there's no major Jewish presence, there's very little anti-Semitism. And not only that, uh, the American government was founded on the basis of freedom from religion and equality of its citizens, even though uh, the Afro-American citizens were kept as slaves. But the goals were noble. And uh, America uh, was not seen by the Jews in Europe as a place to go to live. The legends about America was that it was a wild place, a lawless place. You had the indigenous people who were violent. And uh, to a great extent, therefore, uh, the people who emigrated to the United States were uh, Let's move it up. That's it. banging on the table. Oh, the people who moved to the United States were uh, of the lower class, people that ran away, and they helped form the country. But there is again no Jew. Not it was a Jewish admiral in 1812. Uriah Levy was his name. He was an, one of the uh, first admirals in the United States Navy. He fought against the British in uh, 
the War of 1812. His family later bought Thomas Jefferson's home in Monticello, Virginia. And there's a Jewish cemetery in the backyard of Thomas Jefferson's home, the Levy family. So uh, the United States does not have a Jewish problem. And it remained that way until the, towards the end of the 1840s. Then there were revolutions in Europe revolutions against the monarchies, revolutions against the government, it became very unstable. And this brought about the first wave of major immigration of Jews to the United States. And these Jews were from Germany, and they were reform, and they came and they settled mainly, the German uh, uh, immigrants uh, settled mainly in Ohio near Cincinnati. In fact, in the American history, that was called the Rhineland. And uh, the Jewish, German Jews came there also. And as I mentioned, the German Jews were reformed. And they were the reform of the 1800s, not today's reform. And the reform of the 1800s uh, was out to sever all ties with Judaism, in effect to assimilate as rapidly as possible into the general population. So therefore, uh, Cincinnati became the home of reform Judaism in the United States. Hebrew Union College was established in Cincinnati. And there was a reform rabbi by the name of Isaac Mayer Wise who came to the United States. He was a radical reformer in Germany. He was such a radical reformer that his congregation uh, drove him out. And he came to America and he was the one that established uh, reform in the United States. So we have here for the first time in Jewish history that the basic infrastructure for the exile of, of Jews coming to a country was completely non-traditional, anti-traditional. So he established the, the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, uh, Central Conference of American Rabbis, and uh, they adopted what they called was the Pittsburgh Platform. They had a convention in Pittsburgh, and the Pittsburgh Platform said no Hebrew, no Sabbath, no dietary laws, nothing. And it said basically no Jerusalem, no land of Israel, forget it. And uh, this was the Jewish community uh, at the time of the American Civil War. Now, the German Jews were very successful in two areas. They became uh, Wall Street, Kuhn Loeb, other such uh, uh, companies, uh, later Lehman Brothers, uh, etc. These were all German Jewish financial institutions 
that made a fortune in the Civil War and rose to prominence and rose to great wealth and therefore also rose to influence. In the Civil War, because of uh, the fact that there was now Jewish money, so to speak, on the table, anti-Semitism increased. Uh, the Jews in the South fought on behalf of the South. The Jews in the North fought on behalf of the Jews in the North. Now, the American army then, uh, a lot of the supplies, uh, because it's a civil war, were brought from home. It wasn't, so therefore, they allowed uh, all sorts of peddlers and other people to come to visit the troops and sell them things. Many of these peddlers were these German Jews. So we had a famous order issued by General Ulysses Grant that banned specifically all Jewish peddlers from the Union lines. Lincoln canceled the order and told Grant never to do that again. Now Grant was not an anti-Semite. Uh, when he became the president, uh, he appointed the first Jewish cabinet minister, Oscar Strauss, and he had many Jewish friends. The Jewish bankers supported him. But the stereotype of the Jew was fixed in American society. The stereotype of the Jew was money, peddlers, who are not really loyal to anybody. And because reform was so radical against Judaism, the Christians also saw it as being radical against Christianity. Because Christianity was based, and still is, it's based on Judaism. It's based on the land of Israel. It's based on Jerusalem. But it's based on the Sabbath. And here you have this uh, so-called religious group that says all of this is nonsense. So uh, there developed a uh, genteel anti-Semitism in America. Now we, we can read of this. There's a book by Stephen Birmingham called Our Crowd which is the story of the German Jews, Seligman Baer and all of them, in the 1850s, 60s, 70s. And how they made their own circle in New York. And they formed what became the federations. They created the Federated Charities of the City of New York, and through the federations, through these charities, they, so to speak, controlled Jewish life. And because the money was always there, and the influence was always there, so that's what American Jewry was in the eyes of the American people.
Uh, Birmingham's book is an excellent book uh, about uh, the times. In 1871, Tsar Alexander I was assassinated. The Tsar was a despot and the author of terrible anti-Jewish decrees. Those who assassinated him were anarchists, socialists, communists, and all of those groups had a disproportionate amount of Jews that belonged to them. There are many reasons, understandable. The persecution of the Jews was number one. Got to get rid of the Tsaris destroying the Jews. Uh, but uh, also because these are all utopian groups. They all promise that we're going to have the better world. They're going to bring about uh, the, uh, the dream of the ages. And that always appeals to Jews. The more utopian you are, the better your reception will be amongst the Jews. Now, this stems from our messianic beliefs, and it stems also from the way uh, traditionally we have always thought how the world should be. The world should be equal, fair, good. Everybody should have everything, you know, wonderful. Now, desire was assassinated. He was succeeded by Alexander II. Alexander II looked at the situation and he said, we have to reform the situation. So he took away many of the decrees against the Jews. He lightened the load on the peasants, the serfs. He attempted to drag Russia, as Churchill said, screaming and kicking into the modern era. But he died at an early age. And he was succeeded by his son, who uh, would eventually preside over the destruction of uh, Russia and of the Romanovs. Starting in 1870 and continuing unabated for 55 years, you have a tremendous wave of emigration of Jews from Eastern and Central Europe to the United States. Uh, Sholem Aleichem had an essay in which he said the word America was magic. The moment you said America, was, it was magic in the Jewish world. America was going to be the escape from everything that was wrong in Europe. And therefore you have uh, an immigration of uh, two and a half, two and three quarter million Jews to the United States in a short period of time. Now these are different Jews, these are not Reformed Jews. They're traditional Jews. 
They're not very scholarly. But they, uh, so they spoke Yiddish and they uh, built synagogues, but they never built schools. I remember my neighborhood in Chicago, and I, I was at, growing up at the end of the immigrant era. Uh, so we had 42 Orthodox synagogues within uh, one neighborhood. And I'm not talking Schneeblach or House Minyonim. I'm talking about buildings with great Rabbonim, with hundreds of people every Sabbath. But there was not one Jewish school. And you didn't have to be a genius to figure out what's going to happen. Now, this great wave of immigration, New York absorbed a million and a half Jews. Other major cities in the United States. So all of a sudden, there was an enormous bulk of Jews. And these Jews were obviously, you know, the German Jews were uh, polite, genteel, well-mannered. One could not say the same for the Jews that came from the shtetl. I remember in my father's synagogue, there was... uh, an item of furniture called the spittoon. And people went and spat in it or blew their nose in it. Which is not very conducive to American culture. So the Jews were looked upon as backward. Primitive. They didn't speak the language. And if they spoke the language, it was with a heavy accent. Now, all of us can uh, relate to this because we all here in Israel are also immigrants. And we know what it feels like when you try to speak Hebrew to somebody. And even though my Hebrew is perfect, they don't seem to think so. (laughs) And you had other ethnic groups that came. He had... A few million that came from Italy. You had Irish. You had vast waves of immigration because America then was an open country and America wanted the immigration because they wanted to become a continental power, push all the way to the Pacific, drive out the indigenous people. So you needed people, you needed population. The ethnic groups always warred with each other because they were at the bottom of the ladder, the rungs of the ladder. They were fighting for the same low jobs, for the same tenement apartment. So you developed uh, an anti-Jewish atmosphere from above and from below. Now, the reform that controlled the federations created institutions on behalf of the immigrants. There was something called Hayas, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. And there were settlement houses 
there were uh, afternoon schools, all of which the purpose was to strip them away from their Jewish roots and to try and assimilate them as quickly and as efficiently as possible into American society. On top of it, the American public school system then was built on the principle of being the melting pot. The melting pot meant that you threw everybody in, but out of it would come a unified society. So the American public school system, which was mainly staffed by uh, Protestant spinster teachers, and had as its goal the complete assimilation of the students into what they determined would be American society. And therefore, uh, the Jewish children didn't stand a chance because of the fact that that was like the only, the only ball game in town, the only thing you could do. And all sorts of pressures existed uh, to assimilate. Now, Rabbi Tversky, uh, my friend, had a wonderful one-line description of that time. He said the immigrant generation of Jews to America wanted to give to their children what they did not have, meaning money, education, opportunity, respect, but he said they forgot to give them what they did have. And that evaporated. So uh, the process of integration, the process of assimilation was from the first day onwards. On top of it, we had all sorts of other problems that destroyed it. There was a six-day work week. You didn't come in on Saturday, don't bother to come in on Monday. So for the majority of American Jews, it was impossible to be a Sabbath observer. I always tell the story about my father's synagogue that had two very large services on the Shabbat morning. First one was six in the morning. So there were 750 men that came, they prayed, they heard the Torah reading, and then they all got on the trolley and went to work. The second service was somewhat smaller. Those were people that somehow didn't go to work, or didn't go to work that early in the morning. But if you didn't go to work, then how are you gonna feed your family? And that was a uh, terrible test that most American Jews were unable to pass, unable to weather that storm.
And once the Sabbath was gone, then everything else was doomed to follow. On top of it, coming to America with the Jews as part of the Jews were all of the Jewish anarchists, communists, and socialists who were now driven out of Russia. And they came to America and they remained. In fact, they became even more vehemently anarchists, socialists, communists, radicals. And they created a culture. Now there's another book that I think that's worthy of your attention. It's called The World of Our Fathers. It was written by Irving Howe. Irving Howe, a socialist Jew, a professor, very well-written book. You read the, the book, must be 400 pages, and describes everything that went on in the immigrant generation. There is almost no mention of synagogues, Torah, or observance in the whole 400 pages. It's all about the workers' unions and the Jewish theater and the culture, but there's almost nothing about being Jewish in the book. And when he was asked why he wrote a book that, so to speak, was so blatantly uh, absent of uh, the other part of the Jewish story, he said he never knew the Jewish story. That's, that's the world that he grew up in. And uh, there was a whole culture of Yiddish. Yiddish was going to be the hallmark of American Jewry. So there were Shalom Aleichem schools and Yudlamid Peretz schools, all of which had nothing to do with Judaism and would not, uh, would not survive uh, uh, to the modern era. But that's where all the effort was. That's where all the excitement was, and that's where everybody said that's what it's going to be. And there were other phenomena in American Jewish life. One of the great phenomena was that the Jews created the motion picture industry, beginning in the very early 1900s. It was created by immigrant Jews. There was such a thing as uh, the Nickelodeon in that day, very primitive, and then they developed it and they made movies. They moved out to Hollywood. And they created the motion picture. Now, the motion picture was an enormous cultural tool. It influenced everyone in the United States and may still do so. And these immigrant Jews were determined to create an ideal America. And to create an ideal America... They had to crush any Jewish observance or ideas. So uh, it's not an accident of uh, fate that the first sound movie in the United States, The Jazz Singer, uh, starred Al Jolson, 
in an autobiographical uh, role as the son of a religious family, a cantor, and that he himself becomes a popular singer, but that uh, he marries out of the faith, but that he nevertheless is accepted by the synagogue and he uh, performs Kol Nidre in front of everybody in the synagogue but his wife, his non-Jewish wife present. And that was America. That's what America was going to be. It was accepted. And the Jews created this image. They created this image and they created a utopian America. An America where uh, it's home on the range. Everything is beautiful. Later they would reverse the whole thing and create what in their mind was a disgusting America. But this had a tremendous effect. Now you have to realize uh, every family went to the movies. The movies cost a nickel. Five cents. So you went to the movies and you saw two movies and it was, and it was hot so the movies at least were air-conditioned so you stayed maybe for a third movie. And it all had an effect. It had a great effect. And the effect was to build up in the mind of the next generation that somehow to be a success in America, to survive in America, you had to give up your Judaism. You could not combine the two. It could not happen. Now there were attempts uh, to swim against this. Uh, the major Yeshiva in America then was Rabbi Yitzchok Hanan Seminary in New York, Reitz, which wanted to produce uh, American-trained English-speaking rabbis, but who would be loyal and faithful to tradition. But you had this conflict which never was resolved that you had the older European-born rabbis. They were a powerful, large organization called the uh, Union of the Orthodox Rabbis of the United States and Canada, who were all European-born. Almost none of them spoke English. And uh, when, uh, for instance, the so-called modern Orthodox rabbi would came, came into being, that rabbi was not accepted as being a real rabbi. They were clean-shaven. They spoke their sermons in English. Uh, the older rabbis held them to be inferior in Jewish scholarship, in Talmud. And uh, you had this rift. And the older rabbis would eventually leave the scene but they left over a legacy of this 
internal conflict within orthodoxy itself of the uh, mindset that we're not going to accept certain people because <coughs> they're not like us. In 1898, there was an attempt by a Sephardic rabbi in New York to create an institution that would produce American-trained rabbis who would preserve the tradition of Judaism. It was called the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. And as its head, there was a man that who uh, was world famous, Solomon Schechter, because he was the great expert on the Cairo Geniza. I think it was a great Geniza in Cairo that was discovered in the 1870s. And the Geniza is fascinating. It has uh, original documents of Maimonides. It has grocery lists. It has report cards. It's a window into uh, 10th, 11th, uh, earlier and earlier centuries of Jewish life in Egypt. And it also had manuscripts that we did not know existed or that we did not have any originals to compare it to. And now it existed. And he spent like 25 years and he restored 42,000 of these pieces of paper, parchments, etc. And he was financed by two Scottish Protestant spinsters from Cambridge University, and that's how he made his reputation. And he had a tremendous reputation to being a Jewish biblical scholar. He himself was personally observant. So when this seminary uh, began, so first of all, the uh, Orthodox establishment, the European rabbis uh, immediately discounted it because they said that's not a yeshiva. So their, their recollection of a yeshiva was uh, Slabotka and uh, Valozhin. So uh, Schechter came, and when he came, he had a very uh, cool reception. He was not treated uh, in the fashion that he felt that his scholarship uh, deserved. And in any event, the uh, German financiers on Wall Street, who were all reform, one of them had a son-in-law by the name of Jacob Schiff. Now, Jacob Schiff was a traditional Jew. He was not reformed. But he was convinced that orthodoxy could not maintain itself in the United States. And he said to the seminary, I will finance you, but we have to create. And that was the birth of what today is called conservative Judaism, which somehow attempted to burn the candle at both ends, 
to accommodate itself completely to American life and to somehow conserve Judaism in a meaningful fashion. Uh, originally, you could not tell the difference between the graduates of the Jewish Theological Seminary and graduates of Orthodox institutions. In fact, many of the graduates of the Jewish Theological Seminary served as leading Orthodox rabbis in the world. For instance, Chief Rabbi Hertz in England was the uh, Chief Rabbi of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth, was a graduate of the Jewish Theological Seminary. But after a period of time, as always happens, it's very hard to maintain a uh, footing on the middle road. And uh, conservative Judaism then broke off and it became its own. And it said that it was between Reform and Orthodox and it was the wave of the future of the American Jewish community. Now, conservative Judaism was not successful in spreading its message anywhere else except the United States and Canada. In the rest of the world, it was Orthodox Judaism, and if you didn't, uh, weren't observant, you weren't observant, but that didn't affect your, the definition of Judaism. You didn't create, so to speak, a new type of Judaism to fit uh, your social needs. So that happened at the beginning. Another thing that happened, which uh, when the Italians came, especially those from Sicily, they brought the mafia with them. It was their way of life. So you had this type of crime families that exerted uh, tremendous financial and even political pressure, especially in the city of New York, but in other cities as well. And the Jews grew up side by side with the Italians. And therefore, a Jewish mafia also came into being. And the Jewish mafia, for a long period of time, was more powerful. And the most famous gangsters originally in the United States were Jews. I remember as a child, I overhearing in my parents' home, that my father complained to my mother he said he had to conduct a funeral today. The funeral was for a Jewish mobster who was a member of the shul. And what was he going to say about him? I never knew what he was going to say about him. But uh, that was a symptom of the times. And so you had that the immigrant Jewish community had all sorts of labels to it. it. Had the label of money, peddlers, which later became Wall Street, which in today in the United States, when you hear uh, the, uh, the left talk about Wall Street, they're talking about Jews, they're not talking about Wall Street. 
The fact that many of them are Jews doesn't change that. Wall Street is a euphemism for Jews, even though most of Wall Street has never been Jewish and is not Jewish. J.P. Morgan wasn't Jewish, and Rockefeller wasn't Jewish, and Henry Ford certainly wasn't Jewish. But that's a label, and labels uh, eventually stick. People are not sophisticated to really know what happened. And then you have the label that Jews are not religious. Because look at reform. And then you have the label that Jews are leftist communist anarchists. And then you have the label that Jews are gangsters. So when you look back at it, it's miraculous that the Jew, the early Jews in the United States were not persecuted on the streets because everything negative in an American life was thrown and attributed to them. Now, uh, Woodrow Wilson, who was the president of the United States during the First World War, appointed the first Jew uh, as a member of the United States Supreme Court, I mean, Louis D. Brandeis. <clears throat> Brandeis met with an enormous amount of anti-Semitism on the court. There was a southern bigot on the court, McReynolds. In all the 25 years that Brandeis was on the court, he never spoke to him once. Harvard had no Jewish professors, but then somebody bought a seat or established a chair in Semitic studies, and uh, this uh, wealthy man, uh, they chose uh, Henry Austrian Wolfson, who was a graduate of Slabotka Yeshiva, and who was a well-known Semitic scholar to be the professor. He, uh, there are a number of books about him, and he himself wrote a book of essays. He is the author of the famous story that uh, uh, one of the other professors at Harvard came up to him and said, what makes you people think you are so special? And Wolfson said to him, as far as I know, we're the only people who, when we drop a book, picks it up and kisses it. But that was the atmosphere. And uh, the second and third generation of Jews who did not want to be tarred with those uh, labels and wanted to get ahead. They didn't want to live in tenements on the Lower East Side. And the only way to get ahead was, they said, through education. And education meant college. It didn't mean just getting high school. Now, even high school was not then mandatory in the United States. Most Americans had a sixth or seventh grade education of elementary school, and that was it. 
pretty much so today as well, even though they may attend colleges. <laughs> I remember when I uh, left the public school at seventh grade, I knew a lot. But high school was, wow, that was a level already. And college was uh, the top of the heap. J.M. in the A.M. We're actually going to conclude Rabbi Wine's lecture on uh, the topic of immigration and integration. This series is entitled The United States and Its Jews. And lecture number one is uh, integra- Immigration and, and Integration. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. You can also feel free to go to the website and uh, order away. Uh, they really have incredible um, uh, lectures. I mean, we're talking about thousands of them. And uh, they also have great deals if you're a member. So you could sign up at uh, rabbiwine.com, rabbiweien.com, literally become a member and uh, and partake in so many amazing Jewish history lectures that keep going, that keep going. Rabbi Wine, Baruch Hashem, B'li'ayin Hara, just keeps going. Uh, simply amazing. Uh, also, I remind you that our friends at Art Scroll, uh, as confirmed yesterday on the air with Rabbi Gedalia Zlotowicz, in honor of the uh, incredible partnership that we have with uh, Rabbi Wine and the Destiny Foundation, and now, of course, with Art Scroll and ArtScroll.com as well, uh, they've gone ahead and uh, made the following arrangement. Those of you who go to ArtScroll.com and use promo code RADIO, again, those of you who go to artscroll.com and use promo code radio, um, you get 15% off on any Rabbi Beryl Wine title. And he has some amazing and incredible books. If you've never seen that list, go to artscroll.com and search Rabbi Beryl Wine. So 15% off of all Rabbi Beryl Wine titles plus free shipping if you use promo code radio. That goes through Tishabov in honor of Rabbi Wine being the uh, centerpiece of our spoken word programming here during uh, JM and the AM during the nine days. Today is Rosh Chodesh, all the traditional additions for Rosh Chodesh, including Yalaviyavo, Half Hallel, special Torah reading, Musaf, Baruchinavshi, and whatever your custom calls for. Today is Rosh Chodesh morning. It's the beginning of the nine days. No meat, no alcohol. If you are a member of the Ashkenazic community, many communities, of course, have their own customs about uh, the nine days and about Shavuot Shechalbo, the actual week that Tishabov falls, uh, which would begin at Havdalah. Uh, so just follow whatever your local custom is. That's the way we do it in our tradition, and uh, it's a good idea to continue that tradition uh, now and uh, and always, of course. Uh, we'll go to our news from Israel coming up. I do want to remind you that this portion of NSN programming is brought to you by our friends at A&H. Abel's and Hyman Kosher Hot Dog Sausage and Deli is the world's best. Their hot dogs are now available at Trader Joe's nationwide. Check out A&H today. And I mentioned that if you go to artscroll.com, all by Barrel Wine titles are 15% off plus free shipping. Don't forget, 10% off on all books and free shipping with no minimum if you use promo code radio right now. Again, 10% off on everything and free shipping if you use promo code radio. So keep that in mind as you go to artscroll.com. Also, if you pre-order the um, Danielle Renoff book, uh, Peas, Love, and Carrots, the cookbook. Uh, not only will you get a free tote bag if you pre-order it now at artscroll.com, uh, and you'll see the banner at the top of the page, uh, you'll also um, uh, you'll also uh, get it before Tishabov. You'll have it in your hands before Tishabov, the brand new book, which frankly is 
sooner than anybody's going to have it if they're going to a retailer to get it. So artscroll.com has all the details. Check it out and enjoy. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NahumSingle.com and the NahumSingle Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. We will go to our news from Israel, then we'll go to the concluding minutes of Rabbi Wine's lecture, his opening lecture on the United States and its Jews, on this Rosh Chodesh morning here at JMNAM. Professor Yonatan Alevi is going to join us from Shari Tzedek Medical Center in Jerusalem in the 7 o'clock hour, and plenty more, of course, between now and 9 a.m. Even during the nine days, we have amazing programming. Incredible. Baruch Hashem. Galay Tzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Wednesday is next. We say Boker Tov from Jam in the AM. Zami Yerushalayim, Asha Ashtayim, Shalom Rav, Kan Rani Yovnai, Ima Shekurei Akshav. Taltala Bakoalitsia, Kachol Avan Tamcha Bachok Leisur Tipulei Amara, Benigud Leemdat Alikud. Achok Avar Berov Shel 46 Kolot. Katavano Apoliti Mikhail Hauser Tov. Bakachol Avan Echlitu Kvar Etmol Leatzbiya Beada Chok Veneged Emdat Akoalitsia. Zot Beikar Bichuvalit Michat Alikud Lifne Kishvuaim Baatzala Akamat Vadat Hakira Parlamentarit Levdikat Nigudei Inyanim Shel Ashoftim. Bamiflagot Acharediot Zoamim Kaet Algant. אבל גם על נתניהו שלא נכח עצמו בהצבעה, אמיר אוחנה הצביע גם הוא בעד. גנץ כתב לחברי הכנסת שלו, להצבעתנו אפשר ויהיו משמעויות, אבל זהו הדבר הנכון לעשות. רובים חייל אישור החוק בש"ס הודיעו כי לא השתתפו בהצבעות במליאה עד להודעה חדשה. יוזם הצעת החוק, יושב ראש מרץ ניצן הורוביץ, ברך אצל יעל דן בגלי צה"ל על תוצאות ההצבעה. זאת הצבעה, אפשר להגיד, היסטורית, והכנסת פה היום אמרה דבר משמעותי בצורה בלתי רגילה. זה יצליח, זה הדבר הנכון, וזה הדבר הצודק. זה חוצה אופוזיציה, קואליציה, ואני אומר לך, זה יעבור, באבו אבו הזה יעבור. ואנחנו נילחם על זה עד הסוף. המשטרה הודיעה לתנועה לאיכות השלטון כי היא מבטלת את האישורים שניתנו להפגנות המתוכננות מול מעון ראש הממשלה בחמישי ושישי הקרוב. מוקדם יותר אמר השר לביטחון הפנים אמיר אוחנה לאמיר איבגי ביומן הצהריים יש למצוא את האיזון בין זכות ההפגנה לבין הפגיעה בתושבי האזור. עוד אמר השר אוחנה כי היועץ המשפטי לממשלה מנדלבליט לא לוקח ברצינות את האיומים על ראש הממשלה. הוא לא לוקח ברצינות את הנושא הזה. פניתי גם לראש השב"כ, שכידוע אמון על אבטחתו של ראש הממשלה, ואני מאוד מקווה שהנושא יילקח ברצינות, ואני חושב שאלמלא היחידה לאבטחת אישים, לי אין ספק שמישהו היה קם ועושה מעשה. זה פשוט שנאה תהומית שמביאה אנשים לכתוב מי יהיה הגיבור שיקום ויהיה יגאל עמיר הבא. ברקע המשך העלייה במספר חולי הקורונה, יושב ראש ימינה, שר הביטחון לשעבר, נפתלי בנט, טוען בגלי צה"ל, הנתונים לא מצדיקים כניסה לסגר. כרגע התרופה למגפה היא הרבה יותר חמורה מהמגפה עצמה. אמרתי את זה לפני שלושה חודשים, הסדרים האלה יביאו לעלייה אקספוננציאלית בהתאבדויות של אנשים שאין להם מה לאכול. אני מסתכל על הנתונים. זה שבארבעה ימים אנחנו בהתייצבות על בערך 260 חולים קשים, בסדר, השמיים לא נפלו, לא בגלל זה מכניסים מדינה לסגר. תקציב הביטחון, ראש הממשלה נתניהו תומך בתוספת של יותר משלושה מיליארד שקלים. כתבנו לענייני צבא וביטחון, צחי דבוש. בדיון בנושא תקציב הביטחון הנחה ראש הממשלה נתניהו את האוצר לאתר מקורות צבעיים לתוספת בסך 3.3 מיליארד שקלים לתקציב הביטחון. התקציב הנוסף מיועד לתחומים קריטיים נוספים שאינם סובלים דיחוי, כך לשון הודעת לשכת ראש הממשלה, וכן לצורך מימון הפעילות השוטפת של צה"ל והמכשול ברצועת עזה. ומזג האוויר למחר, חם מהרגיל. אלה החדשות שעורך רועי ולט.
I thank you for tuning in on our nine days format. Tomorrow is opening day in Major League Baseball, as hard as that is to believe. If it actually happens, we'll see what happens. Uh, so I've invited Steve Adelsberg back. You may recall his uh, discussion with us, um, I guess, in June. I assume it was in June about Jews and sports. So in honor of uh, opening day, we'll do part of that tomorrow in the 8 o'clock hour with him. And uh, that should be interesting. Uh, also, Ellie Beer is going to join us next week. We know that he survived COVID. We know he's the head of uh, United Hatzalah in Israel. Uh, he'll join us next week here at JM in the AM. Also, this coming Friday, my father delivered back in 1994 what was a uh, an incredible um, an incredible eulogy um, that encapsulated the life of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He did it on the Shloshim, which was the third of Av. This Friday, the third of Av, we will replay and rebroadcast that eulogy, uh, an amazing biographical sketch in 25 minutes of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. We will do that um, this coming Friday at about 7.15 a.m. Eastern Time. Please spread the word again about 7.15 a.m. Eastern Time this coming Friday. Uh, Professor Yonatan Alevi will join us from uh, Shari Tzedek Medical Center in Jerusalem this hour here at JM in the AM. I also want to thank those who've been supporting our fundraiser. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Many, many people out there are understanding and realizing the importance of this radio broadcast on a daily basis and of our network 24 hours a day, keeping everyone connected and together, providing great programming and original programming, stuff you won't get anywhere else. And um, and um, those of you who'd like to join the fundraiser, fjbunity.org. I remind you, you could sponsor part or all of our broadcast in memory of somebody if you wish. All the, all the information is at the... Uh, fjbunity.org website, you'll see at the top it says Sponsorship Opportunities, fjbunity.org, or if you wish to simply send a check, it's Foundation for Jewish Broadcasting, 551 Grand Street, Suite 3, New York City, 1002. That's Foundation for Jewish Broadcasting, 551 Grand Street, Suite 3, New York City, 1002. And that's how it works, and I thank you very, very much. The conclusion of Rabbi Beryl Wine's um, uh, lecture on immigration and integration, it's from the series entitled The United States and Its Jews. Information about Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com, and as we said, Artscroll.com, if you use promo code radio at Artscroll.com, all of Rabbi Beryl Wine's titles this week, are 15% off and free shipping. Make sure to use promo code RADIO. If the public school at 7th grade, I knew a lot. But high school was, wow, that was a level already. And college was uh, the top of the heap. And Jews were convinced. And under Jewish pressure, for instance, uh, the city of New York created a college City College of New York, and it was pretty much a free college, and it was 90% Jewish. And that was the stepping stone to get out. Now, you couldn't get to medical school easily because the medical schools would not accept Jews happily. So whereas in Germany... Uh, 30 to 35% of all the doctors 
were Jewish before the Second World War. Roosevelt famously uh, stated that he understood Hitler because there were too many Jewish doctors in Germany. But in the United States, there were maybe uh, two, three percent of the doctors were Jewish. And you couldn't get in. So what did the Jews do? They formed their own medical schools. And they formed their own hospitals. So that's why in New York you had Beth Israel and Mount Sinai. In Chicago you had Mount Sinai. And these hospitals were kosher hospitals. Some of them still today are kosher hospitals. They were made by Jews for Jews. So, and, they, and would hire Jewish doctors and would have an adjunct medical school or nursing school so that Jews could go into the medical profession. All of this happened, but there still were no real Jewish religious schools of education built. Now, Yeshiva Sabino Yitzchok Hanan began in the early 1900s. Uh, it uh, produced uh, the uh, new Orthodox rabbi for America for decades and decades on end, even till today. Uh, but it was looked at askance again by the older traditional rabbis even though its faculty was always older traditional rabbis. In fact, the faculty of the Jewish Theological Seminary of America, the conservative movement, was older traditional European-born rabbis who were completely observant and who were great scholars. But the school itself was something else. Uh, I certainly cannot judge people, especially people from a different generation and different circumstances. But it's an anomaly that it's hard to uh, somehow logically explain. Uh, there was a man uh, by the name of Bernard Revel, Dr. Bernard Revel. Revel was a Talmudic genius. He came from Eastern Europe. He came to America. He married the daughter of an Oklahoma Jew who literally struck oil and was a trillionaire. And Revel, he took Revel into the business. Revel lasted about a year. And then he said, uh, that's not for me. And he moved back to New York. And uh, because of his great talents, he went to uh, university and got a PhD. And he was one of the great Talmudic scholars. And eventually he became the head of Yeshiva Rabbeinu Yitzchok Hana. And he built the institution till his death in the early 1940s. And he had this vision that he was going to build a yeshiva with the university as part of the yeshiva. And he realized the dream. However, again, uh, there was uh, great opposition to it. 
And till today, this divide in American Jewry, in American Orthodox Jewry, is alive and functioning. Uh, on both sides of the ledger. So the immigrant generation is a generation of confusion, of terrible difficulties. But it was still part of the great magic word America, because everybody felt, here we're going to make it. The socialists felt it, the mafia felt it, the religious felt it, everybody felt it. Here we're going to make it. This is different than Europe. And it was that idea that would fuel the further development of American Jewry. This concludes. Wednesday morning, it's JM in the AM, and we are in our... Nine days format. Rabbi Beryl Wine, that's the conclusion of his lecture on uh, immigration and integration. Uh, that was uh, part one of the four-part series, The United States and Its Jews. And we'll get to more uh, and to the second lecture in just a moment here at JMN. We're going to interrupt our um, presentation of the second lecture um, a little later on. Besides Rabbi Goldwasser coming on, which we do every single day, uh, Professor Yonathan Alevi is going to join us from Israel. Shari Tzedek Medical Center, talk about what's happening today in July with COVID-19. This has been quite an ordeal. March, April, May, June, now July, all around the world. It's Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av. Today is Rosh Chodesh, all the traditional additions for Rosh Chodesh, including Alaviyavo, including uh, Half Hallel, special Torah reading, Mosef Baruch Inafshi, whatever your custom calls for. It's now the nine days. We're in our nine days format. Rye Barrel Wines lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. You can check out all of them at RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Our friends at ArtScroll have made all of Rabbi Wine's titles 15% off and free shipping with promo code RADIO because of our relationship both with ArtScroll and with uh, the Destiny Foundation and Rabbi Wine's uh, lectures, uh, which have dominated our spoken word format during the nine days for many, many years. So check it out, everybody. 15% off on all or by barrel wine titles at artscroll.com if you use promo code radio this week. Uh, also, this coming Friday, we'll play uh, my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. We'll do that in the 7 o'clock hour, just around now, about 7.15 on Friday morning, the 3rd of Av, which was the day back in 1994 that my father delivered the uh, Shloshim uh, uh, the Shloshim Hesped, the Shloshim Eulogy for the Rebbe. And um, and as I said, next week, Ali Beer is going to join us and plenty more as we build up to Tisha B'Av. Uh, Erev Shabbos Nachamu, the day after Tisha B'Av, will be the final day of July, and that's when we'll switch back to our regular format. So lecture number two in the series of the United States and its Jews is entitled Wealth, Position, and Accomplishment. Wealth, position, and accomplishment. Here is uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine on that topic for you at JM in the AM. So last week I discussed with you the original waves of Jewish immigration to the United States. Colonial times in the 1840s, and then finally beginning in the 1870s, the great wave of emigration from Central and Eastern Europe, 
which uh, brought two and a half million Jews to the United States. The great turning point in the beginning of the 20th century, not only for the world, but for the Jewish people, was uh, World War I, First World War. Even till today, uh, in many parts, in England and in France, uh, it's called the Great War, because there never was a war like it before in human history. It was a war that consumed uh, over 20 million people, and it was a war that destroyed all of the established empires that existed in Europe. And it was a war that uh, 250,000 Jews approximately died in that war. Most of them civilians, but there were great Jewish losses in the German army. Over 12,500 Jews died fighting for the fatherland. There were uh, Jews in the French army, Jews in the British army, and at the end, Jews in the American army, many Jews in the American army. And uh, the war upset everything. And the war brought about the communist revolution in Russia and converted it to the Soviet Union. Our Jews were very prominent in that revolution. That has to be remembered. Uh, and it had the consequences. And it had consequences in the United States. And because of this destruction throughout Europe, all the yeshivas were forced into exile or closed. The Hasidic courts were disbanded. The whole Jewish infrastructure was completely wiped out. And you had new countries that became independent. Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Finland, for a period of time, Ukraine. The common denominator in all the new countries was anti-Semitism. It was a fierce nationalism, and because they were afraid that all the Jews were Bolsheviks, so it doesn't take much to fan the flames of anti-Semitism, which are always simmering below the surface. And when things happen, then all of a sudden uh, they burst into flame. Now, the great uh, victor in the war was the United States. It suffered the least. The war was not fought on its territory. Um, Britain lost 900,000 men were killed, a whole generation. France lost 4 million men killed. Germany lost 5 million men killed. 
and then you had Russia and all of the other countries, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So uh, those people who were stuck in Europe, the Europeans, uh, a great percentage of them wanted to leave. They had enough for Europe. And America turned isolationist. Uh, Woodrow Wilson could not convince the United States to join the League of Nations. Uh, America had 180,000 dead from the war. It was not interested in Europe. It was not interested in helping Europe. It was not interested in Europeans. But American from 1919 to 1924, the United States had an open door. There were no immigration restrictions. So therefore, a very large number of people from Italy and Sicily came to the United States. A very large number of Poles came to the United States. People from all over Europe came. And this initiated this second great wave of immigration of Jews to the United States, especially Eastern European Jews. In 1919, there was a Secretary of State in the United States by the name of Palmer, who was a rabid anti-Semite. And you have to realize that anti-Semitism in the United States was open. For a long time, it's been very clandestine. And now it's becoming, again, more open. But it always was there. But it wasn't government. Now, he uh, initiated what he called the Red Scare. The Western world was deathly afraid of the Bolshevik Revolution. And the Bolsheviks advertised that they're going to spread the revolution throughout the world. And they said they're the wave of the future. And in the United States, there was a portion of the population that was very leftist, was anarchist. They brought that over from Europe. And the Jews in the United States were viewed as being communists. So when the Red Scare began, I mean, the, the Jewish Daily Forward had on its masthead, Workers of the World Unite, it published on Shabbos. And it was the Bible for the Yiddish-speaking Jews in the United States. And Jews somehow, because of the fact that we were always trained to respect the holiness of words and of books, Jews regarded newspapers as being holy. Yet that still exists till our time, right? You've got to have the New York Times. I can't go to work without reading the New York Times. 
The New York Times is holy. So too, uh, there was a Jewish communist newspaper in the United States called the Freiheit, Freedom. Now the communists co-opted all of the nice words that existed in the language. They were progressive, their enemies were reactionary. The word itself defines already the person. They're forward-looking, they're the wave of the future, they're utopia. In fact, uh, you say someone is conservative, that's not the very popular way to describe anybody. Liberal, wow. Positive word. Progressive is even a more positive word. And the left had the genius of always co-opting the positive message, even though it itself was regressive, totalitarian, dictatorial, and murderous. So because of the Red Scare, by 1924, uh, Congress passed a restrictive immigration law. Now the law did not say no Jews, but the law put a quota of how many immigrants would be allowed from certain countries in the world. Now, all of this is familiar to us, right? We're, in our time, uh, we've passed through this or are passing through it. It's always a problem. The areas that were limited in immigration were areas where Jews lived. Poland, the Baltic states, certainly the Soviet Union, Central Europe, they had very small quotas. And that was to prevent the fact that without those quotas, maybe another million, million and a half Jews would have come to the United States. People say, well, why didn't they come? Why didn't they leave? The answer is there was nowhere they could leave to. You have to have somewhere that you can leave to. Someone to let you in. So uh, a large Jewish population in Eastern Europe is bottled up. There's nowhere they can go. Now, 50,000 a year went to America. So 50,000 a year would uh, add up to a half a million. But that left uh, millions and millions and millions of Jews in Eastern Europe. Now, in the Orthodox world, as I began to explain last week, uh, there was great opposition to any type of immigration. We'll say, well, why didn't they go to Palestine? The uh, Balfour Declaration was enforced then. Britain had no quota until 1926. There was no quota at all. Anybody could come to Palestine. As late as 1929, it still was easy to get certificates to come. Well, how could they come to Palestine 
when Palestine was being run by the leftists. When it was secular to the core, it was anti-religious to the core. And they couldn't go to the United States because the United States not only was the gold in the Medina, it was the trafe in Medina. The Destiny Foundation is proud to present... People that ran away and they helped form the country. But there is, again, no Jew... Not it was a Jewish admiral. Alrighty, my apologies for that. Iran. A little bit of a confusion with the, with the lectures that were playing. I think we'll restart the lecture on uh, wealth, position, and accomplishment after we uh, speak to Presser Yonatan Alevi, who's expected uh, to join us uh, via telephone toward the uh, uh, toward the uh, conclusion of, um, or by Goldwasser's words that are coming up here at JM in the AM. Ah, a, uh, a Wednesday morning on Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av, and I thank all of you for tuning in. It's Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av. All the traditional additions for Rosh Chodesh, including a Hallel, Yalaviyavo, I should say half Hallel, Yalaviyavo, half Hallel, special Torah reading, Musaf Baruch whatever your custom calls for. That's how we put it. Uh, our um, nine days format, as is our custom, is uh, our spoken word format is being dominated by the gladly is being dominated by the incredible words, the lectures of Rabbi Beryl Wine. Rabbi Wine's uh, brilliant lectures are available online in an immense and incredibly large collection of incredible Jewish history lectures and so many topics, so many things. And uh, all you have to do is go to uh, the website, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Again, that's RabbiWEIN.com for information about the lectures. And... Um, you could also go to, uh, or actually you can call for information, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN for information about the lectures as well. And uh, I remind you that our friends at artscroll.com are offering a 15% off on all Rabbi Wine titles during the nine days, plus free shipping if you use promo code RADIO. Take advantage of their generosity and this great offer for the consumers all Rabbi Beryl Wine titles at artscroll.com, 15% off and free shipping if you use promo code RADIO. And um, and 10% um, off on all books and free shipping with no minimum if you use promo code RADIO this week at Artscroll. Dot com. Also, don't forget to pre-order the cookbook, uh, Danielle Renolf's cookbook, Peas, Love, and Carrots, the cookbook. Plus, you get a free tote bag if you pre-order it at artscroll.com. And remember what Gedalia Zlotowicz told us yesterday. He told us that um, if you pre-order it now, you will have it in hand next week before Tishabov. So, yet another incentive to go and to... Uh, And to enjoy those savings, and um, and to uh, pre-order the book at artscroll.com. 
keep that in mind. Feel free to comment on the app. Go to the NSN, Nahum Single Network app for Android and iPhone and comment away. Don't forget we have a, a resume service if you're out of work or know somebody who's out of work. Feel free to go ahead yourself or have others send their resume to resume at NahumSingle.com, resume at NahumSingle.com. Hopefully we'll have an opportunity to uh, find someone employment. If it's in the area of Jewish not-for-profit executive positions, those resumes get passed immediately to Willie Hochman and our friends at the Joel Paul Group. So keep that in mind as well. Wednesday morning, JM in the AM, Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Zechonishmas Harav Zebna Bilsavalevi, and Lezechonishmas Esther Basar Bilsavalevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizot. Good morning. We say the Pasuk, Hashivenu Hashem Elecha Vinashuva. Bring us back to you, Hashem, and we will return. The Zarashimshan asked the question If you take a look in the Pasuk, it really says Vinashuv without the hay. Yet, we read it, Vinashuva. Why? There's a Talmud in Yuma that says that there were five phenomena present during the time of the first base of Mikdosh. These, however, were not present in the second base of Mikdosh. Those five things are the Aaron, the Kapora Sukruvim, the fire from heaven, the divine presence, the divine spirit, and the special Urim Vetumim. That's alluded to in the Pasuk that comes to teach us at the very end of Echa, where it talks about the tsar, the bitterness of the exile. We ask Hashem, Hashivenu Hashem Elecha, Hashem, please bring us back to you. Vinoshuva, it is written without the hay, that even if we are not worthy, that we can be fully returned, at least bring us back without the five revelations that we had in the first base of Mikdosh. But then, when we say it, we say Vinashuva with the hay, meaning it is our every hope and prayer that our return should be fulfilled according to the way we read it, with a complete restoration and all of those miracles that were present in the first base of Mikdosh will now be returned in the base of Mikdosh Hashlishi, in the third and final base of Mikdosh. That is the reason why we read it with the hay, although it is only written without the hay. During these days, it is our special avoda, our special service of Hashem, to try and do something that will help us remember the base of Mikdosh. A few suggestions are possibly learning some of the sections of the Navi, of the prophets, dealing with the destruction of the Beis Amikdosh. Perhaps it is saying Al-Naharos Bavel, the special psalm that deals with the Chorban, that is said before Berchas Amazon, the grace after meals. Perhaps it is reflecting on our own lives to try and do tshuva, to repent. One of the greatest things that we can do is to work on our Ahavas Yisrael, loving our fellow Jew, we remember that it was because of sinas chinam, baseless hatred, that the Beis Hamikdash was destroyed. Even the smallest good deed, good thought, or good word to our fellow man 
builds a brick in the future Beis HaMikdosh. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day and a chodesh tov. Thank you very much, Rabbi Goldwasser. Um, Professor Yonatan Levy is going to join us from Israel coming up in just a minute. We'll probably insert a uh, an appropriate selection in between uh, my words and uh, that conversation coming up. Or I Beryl Wine's lecture on the United States and its Jews, a lecture series, United States and its Jews, the lecture of wealth, position, and accomplishment is coming up after that conversation here at JM in the AM. I do remind everybody that we have a, a website where you can uh, sponsor all or part of a JM in the AM broadcast in memory of somebody, in honor of somebody, whatever the case might be. Uh, fjbunity.org. Again, it's fjbunity.org, fjbunity.org. We encourage you to uh, go to that website to support us. Uh, and those who want to just simply send in a donation, no problem. It's um, Foundation for Jewish Broadcasting, 551 Grand Street, Suite 3, New York City, 1002. Again, that's 551 Grand Street, Suite 3, New York City, 1002. And we thank you very, very much in advance and thank those who've been participating for quite a while already. It's much appreciated. That's an understatement. Um, I mentioned that uh, this portion of NSN programming is brought to you by our friends at A&H. Yeah, even during the nine days. Our friends at A&H are there for us. Abel's and Hyman Kosher Hot Dog Sausage and Deli is the world's best. And boy, oh boy, are they going to be grilled up on Nachamu weekend. Uh, they're also now available, the hot dogs, at all Trader Joe's nationwide. Keep that in mind. And also I remind you that our friend Rabbi Gedalia Zlotowitz of Art Scroll, he was with us yesterday, and I remind you that now there's 15% off on all Rabbi Barrel Wine titles, plus free shipping if you use promo code radio at artscroll.com. That's in honor of the fact that we're featuring Rabbi Wine, and don't forget Rabbi Wine's lectures are all available at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. You can also go to rabbiwine.com, rabbiwine.com. We'll do this selection a cappella style from Simcha Liner, and then Professor Yonatan Alevi is going to join us to find out what's happening in Israel re- regarding COVID-19, etc. It's all happening here. If you keep it here, in a Rosh Chodesh, nine days format, JM in the AM. <laughs>
after a historic after a historic um, tenure as director general of Jerusalem's Shari Tzedek Medical Center. Uh, last year, uh, Professor Yonatan Alevi became its uh, president. He's now the president of the Shari Tzedek Medical Center in Jerusalem. And we had an opportunity a couple of months back to speak with him and get a uh, an update, a, a situational analysis of what's happening regarding COVID-19 in Israel. And now, of course, we're following the news from thousands of miles away, and we're curious what's happening today. Professor Yonatan Alevi, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Thank you very much, and uh, good to speak to you again. How are you? Baruch Hashem. As I say, God's been very generous and good to us. Baruch Hashem, I hope you're doing well during this time as well. You know, one of the people that we often feature on this program is Nisim Black, who's a pretty well-known member of the Jewish music world. And I don't know if you're following his social media or not, but both he and his wife have unfortunately suffered, and Baruch Hashem are now recovering from COVID-19. But he has spent a lot of time on social media praising the staff and the people that you're very familiar with at Shari Tzedek Medical Center. So I see even though this has gone on for quite a while, COVID-19, all the way since Purim time, I see that your staff, Baruch Hashem, is still able to dispense great care and do so in uh, in a manner that we would call supreme bedside manner. Yeah, thank God. <clears throat> Even uh, an hour ago, a couple uh, who was hospitalized in another hospital were released prematurely and were admitted 48 hours ago to Sharitzeve COVID-19 department, praised and noted the difference. So thank you for the compliment. I'm very subjective about it. Yes, it's true that it's already uh, four months, but, you know, Israel had uh, two waves. So we had the privilege of uh, having very, very few patients. Actually, we had a week where we had no COVID-19 patients at Sharetzadeh. Wow. But unfortunately, in the last six weeks, the numbers are climbing again. I'll give you some numbers and also my view about the difference between the two waves in Israel. Right. So right, right now, true for this minute, there are uh, 41 patients hospitalized uh, in Shari Tzedek with uh, COVID-19. The peak was Erev Pesach, just before Passover of this year, mid-April or April 9th, I think, was Erev Pesach. We had 128. Wow. So this wave is characterized by lower numbers of patients who need to be admitted to the hospital. There there is a higher number of patients who are being diagnosed, partly because the new Minister of Health in Israel decided to test asymptomatic patients, and the numbers went up from six, five to 6,000 studies, COVID-19, exams a day, it went up to close to 30,000. Yesterday, they did uh, 26,000 COVID-19 tests in Israel. So part of the rise in the number of diagnoses is the increase in the number of tests. But also there is a real increase in the number of patients. It's already a few weeks that the numbers of affected people it's not concentrated in certain uh, cities like uh, Bnei Barak or like Jerusalem or the Haredi community. On the contrary, the ultra-Orthodox community is very disciplined now, 
And uh, we see the patients all over the country, all over the country. It's so that Jerusalem is still a leader, but not necessarily because of the 25 per share, 25% of its population composed of ultra-Orthodox. We almost, and this is very, it's curious map. In the first wave, there was zero number of Arabs. Wow. Today, the Arabs comprise about 30%. It's as if COVID-19 reached them later. No one knows. You know, there is the same statistics from neighboring countries, from Jordan, from Egypt, that started very, very slowly. I think that the virus saw more, showed more affinity to highly developed countries at the beginning, and only then spread. If you take Africa, Africa, poor Africa is almost spared till today. Very low numbers. So this is an observation. But another difference between the first wave and this wave, and this is this calls for cautious optimism, is the fact that the morbidity, the severity of the illness, right. is much less. Uh, at the peak of the first wave, we had 17 patients on respirators. We have four now. The average age of the patients is much, much lower. It has to do with the fact that Israel learned the lesson after the first wave and put special emphasis and a lot of repeated tests in nursing homes. Every couple of days, every everyone who resides in a nursing home and the whole staff of the nursing homes is tested again for COVID-19, and if he turns positive, is immediately isolated. The nursing homes are sealed, and no one, not even family members, can come and visit. So we don't see those who are the most vulnerable right. in the highest risk group. We don't see them in hospital. And in general, the level of acuity and severity of COVID-19 uh, uh, sufferers in this wave is much lower. So I hope that the big numbers will come down. Uh, you probably know, and the viewers who have relatives in Israel knew that the government took few steps two weeks ago that we are maybe starting to see their effect. And this is mainly regarding gatherings. Right. So gatherings were forbidden, even in shuls. Only 10 people allowed indoors if there are conditions to keep social separation. And only 19 outdoors, regardless of the size of the outdoors, poor outdoor space near the hospital. I davened last Shabbat, Shabbat Mevarachim. Uh, I davened with other 18 people. No more, and I lay in the whole Matot Maser. You know, it was the longest sidra of the year right. uh, for for 19 people, 18 people, and myself. And uh, usually in my shul there are 200, so you have to register ahead, and you go only um, only if you are registered. And once it gets to 19, the Gabai, the Corona Gabai, as they call him does not register anymore. So, you know, we feel the corona very much, but I have cautious optimism from the fact that the virus is less aggressive. Did it undergo a mutation? There is no research to back it. 
I believe it's the lower age of the patients. Today we don't believe that the summer do anything, but I think there is a room for cautious optimism because although the numbers are still growing larger, the severity of the cases, the mortality is not very high and, uh, and very stable. It doesn't increase. There are between four and six additional patients who die a day in Israel, right. as opposed to 1,500 to 2,000 who are tested positive. Uh, Professor Yonatan Alevi is with us, uh, Shari Tzedek Medical Center in Jerusalem. He serves as its president. Let me let me go back for a minute, just ask, uh, I mean, the, the age factor and taking care of our elderly, I think that's something that the world, Europe, U.S., Israel, as you just described, I think that's something we've learned to, to do much better, and, and in general, people in that age category and those with certain conditions have learned that isolation or relative isolation is better for them at this point, and I understand that that certainly has reduced, thank God, the mortality uh, numbers. But give me give me a, a sentence or two. I know that you know it. It sounds like you've indicated to us already that it's somewhat mysterious. But is there any theory you can give us about why developed countries, as opposed to poor Africa, as you mentioned, uh, have so much, you know, of a so much more of a higher rate, have so much more of an effect from COVID nineteen? Look, if there is an explanation that they apply to the beginning of the epidemic, I don't know if it applies today. The more international traveling. Right. The more uh, so at the beginning, it's no wonder that the initial spread from China went to Europe, because that's the international traveling. But we are three and a half to four months after most Western countries closed their borders, and third world countries also closed their uh, airports. So that's the only the delay may have been because. The epidemic, we all know, started in China, and at the beginning, it was international traveling. The yeshiva bochers that entered Israel during the 72 hours, not only yeshiva bochers, but mainly... Right, people who did a lot of traveling. entered right. Israel during the 72 hours that Bibi Netanyahu delayed the closure of the border from the U.S. because he didn't want to annoy President Trump, are uh, responsible for around 5,000 cases. Right. That's a well-documented. Right. Professor Alevi, you mentioned President Trump. I don't want to get political, but you said something that to us as Americans who follow the news is really important. Uh, when the president mentions uh, and responds to the criticism that our numbers have skyrocketed in this country, he'll often point out that we're doing more testing than anybody else and more tests will lead to more numbers of cases, uh, it, it sounds, and and the media tells, uh, and the media mocks him. Usually, the mainstream media here mocks him for that statement uh, in very creative ways. Again, without getting political or asking for your preferences in the White House, it sounds like, based on what you're saying, that there's legitimacy to his point of view. Well, there was full legitimacy if the number of the seas, if the number of victims was not going up. But unfortunately, when you look at the number of people who die from the epidemic uh, right now in Florida, in California, in Texas, that's the important number. Yes, 
a certain increase in the number of diagnosed patients comes from the increase in the number of tests. Right. In Israel, it's the same. But if you look at the far end of the severity index, those who are on ventilators and those who die, if there is a steep increase, definitely in the three states that I just mentioned. Right. And this does not lend credence. So right. I think your uh, president this time is only partially... Um, Right. Understood. Uh, it, when you refer, you just you describe the second wave in Israel really well. How it's working, the differences, etc. Is 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 what is going on in thirty plus states here a second wave, or or because some states were a little bit more lackadaisical when it came to restrictions and were quick to reopen, you might not even consider this a second wave. And secondly. Um, do we need to – you see the numbers in the New York, New Jersey area. They're, they're quite impressive, thank God, compared to what it was in April and May. Do, do you think we need to anticipate a second wave, or we may be able to avoid it here? I believe that the second wave in Israel is really not a real second wave, but it's an extension of the first wave and the results from the very quick and comprehensive coming out of the lockdowns. From a full, full hermetic lockdown, Erev Pesach, within four weeks, all the schools return all together. You know, and uh, for for a week, the students learned in capsules, but quickly enough, because classes in Israel are very large, 35 to 40 students, the physical facility is congested, and what we call the second wave, is ascribed in Israel to uh, coming out too quickly and too broadly. And I think that states that don't do it, and especially if the physical conditions of the school, you know, we don't know how much. You know the children are not severely sick except rare cases. Right. We also know that they are probably less contagious, but they are contagious. Right. And they, they, they infect their parents. And uh, because Israel was so hasty to return the Israeli market back, we did it too fast. Instead of doing it gradually, extending the study in capsules, and those who do not have room in the class should learn, um, you know, digitally from home, we didn't do it. And that's the price that we pay. So So, if you look, I think that New York was much, much slower in releasing the public from the lockdowns. Right. I think your elderly, most of Sharet Tzedek donors are elderly people. I talked to them. Some of them did not leave home for 12, 13, 15 weeks. Right. I, 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 I never left. I, I, and thank God, I, I mean, I shouldn't say thank God, but factually I'm not among the elderly yet, but except for walking to my studio where I've been alone uh, for all these weeks, I never went anywhere for any event until uh, Lagba Omer. Uh, do you have a general opinion? You know, it's a big debate here about reopening schools, uh, and, and, and I certainly understand your opinion regarding the quick opening or too quick of an opening in Israel, do you have a general opinion? Because I, I believe that schools in Israel traditionally open September the first. Uh, are you thinking one way or the other about the uh, type of opening, if any, there should be in Israel? Oh, all righty. Hopefully, Professor Alevi will reconnect with us. I pray. 
<laughs> Actually, a very interesting conversation, frankly. He's president of Shari Tzedek Medical Center in Jerusalem. Wednesday morning broadcast on this Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av. We will get to Rabbi Wine. Uh, his second lecture in the series of the United States and its Jews. And, of course, I remind you that our friends at ArtScroll are offering 15% off on all Rabbi Beryl Wine titles um, during the uh, period of the nine days if you use promo code RADIO. Also, a, a general 10% off on all titles uh, at ArtScroll.com if you use promo code RADIO. And um, you could pre-order the uh, brand new cookbook by Danielle Renoff, Peas, Love, and Carrots. You can pre-order it uh, by uh, going to artscroll.com. You'll see the banner at the top of the page. And uh, when you do, you get a free tote bag. And now, according to what Rabbi Gedalia Zlatowicz told us yesterday, you will have it in hand before Tisha B'Av, which is pretty impressive. Again, go to artscroll.com. On all their items, 10% off with promo code RADIO. On our Averil Wine items, it's 15% off plus free shipping with promo code RADIO. Go there and enjoy. I hope that uh, Professor Alevi is going to reconnect with us. Uh, I did have a couple of uh, I did have a couple of things I wanted to mention. Professor Alevi, are you there? Yeah, we were cut off. But I think I spoke at length after we were cut off. We, uh, we were cut off. My question was, do you have... A general opinion, since schools in Israel are generally opening each year, September the 1st, do you have a general point of view about how they should go about uh, the school session for the upcoming year? I think I think there should be a limit on the number. I think that every class should be divided into two groups. Each group will represent a capsule, and I think that three days a week, the first capsule should uh, learn frontally with the teacher, sitting with masks six feet apart from each other, and the other half should be home digitally on the Internet and then rotate. So both capsules and small groups, I think uh, September 1st is so close, I think that's going to be the situation. All right, two quick things before I let you go. Vaccine. I'm sure you're watching all of the. I mean, you're up to date on everything in the medical world. I'm sure you're watching this very, very closely. And we keep hearing about uh, about a a UK vaccine in cooperation with one of the companies here in the United States. Um, uh, Do you think that this, what seems like a dream, frankly, when the president of the United States mentions it, that we could have a vaccine uh, mass marketed by the end of this calendar year? Do you think that really could be a reality? Well, we definitely hope for this. I listened the other day to your Anthony Fauci, who I understand still enjoys um, a lot of popularity <laughs> and justifiably so. Yep. And uh, he was mentioning that it may be even as close as December of this year. Right. When I look at the scientific publication and the, the announcements of Oxford in the UK and Moderna, in the U.S., they are both deep into the clinical trials. They finished phase one, where they tested it on few tens, 45, 50, maximum 90 uh, healthy volunteers. They publicized, and I think this calls for optimism, that uh, the title, the quantity of antibodies produced through the vaccine surpassed significantly the quantity of antibodies that produced by the natural infection 
by COVID-19. Right. But one thing has not been proven yet, and that's that a mass, a phase three, on thousands of people of all ages is both efficacious and safe. You know, the ultimate trial is that these patients, after getting the vaccine, should be infected with the virus and show that they do not get sick. So all these clinical trials, with their ethical dilemmas and questions which we have no time to go into, are usually take a year to a year and a half. Now everything is accelerated. So I think December 2020, and Fauci also was very, uh, you know, very careful in the way he said it. He right. said maybe, I think that's the quickest. If we have it towards the end of the winter, March or April 21, I will be very happy. You know how uh, Professor Alevi is with us from Israel. You know how hard the Orthodox communities were hit uh, Pesach time, Purim Pesach, uh, especially in very heavily Orthodox neighborhoods of uh, New York and New Jersey. It's well documented. There's even this theory about herd immunity. I get that. Uh, a very, very lackadaisical attitude in certain communities right now uh, to wearing masks and social distancing because of these high antibody uh, counts being found in people in our community. I still think that there's a lot of ignorance and arrogance that goes along with that, but that's not for this conversation. That's just a personal opinion. Uh, but with all that in mind, have you seen any cases of reinfection? Are you of the opinion that it really seems that at least for this season, I understand I'm, as little as I know about medicine, I understand that the calendar always has uh, you know an effect on things. Um, but are, are, are you willing to say that at least for this season, someone who's been infected will likely not be reinfected? I, I believe so. You know, trying to um, deduce from other viruses, there is no reason in the world. I think that the few cases of reinfection, most of them are another peak of the same infection. And even if it is a reinfection, it should be extremely, extremely rare. I believe that the virus, like most viruses, confers immunity. We do not know for how long. That's why you were cautious to say for this season. And I believe it's a rule of thumb. Anybody who had the virus, had a positive PCR, and when he recovered, had a positive serological test for antibodies, should be rest assured that he cannot be reinfected. But wouldn't, but wouldn't you still recommend that it would be proper, especially when mingling with other communities, for them to wear masks and social distance because many people do not? have antibodies and do not, and thank God, have been so careful, have not suffered from COVID-19? Yeah, I believe so. Also because of Marie Tain. Nobody right. knows that right. you have antibodies. Correct. So I believe they should, and it's not such, such a far-reaching uh, expectation to wear the mask. Everybody does it today, and they think they should do too. One of our listeners on the apps asks if it's safe for gap year students. I, I guess, again... Based on what you said earlier, one of, it sounds to me at least that one of the reasons the government of Israel is, is ready to let the gap year students come to Israel is because the schools are guaranteeing and the seminaries and yeshivot are guaranteeing that proper testing will be done before, during, and after, and they'll be quarantining in the institutions for at least two weeks. So I guess there's a certain amount of trust that the government, if they do make this decision to let the gap year students in, a certain amount of trust they have in those who are leading these institutions. Yeah, that's correct. 
Finally, I must ask you, when you read Matot Masse, do you get all the aliot like is happening now in my shul, the Balkari gets all the aliot, or do you uh, distribute them and let people say the brachot from a little bit of a distance? Oh, that was wonderful. But uh, no, I did not get. There were seven koim, seven gabre, and they stood, none, none of them approached the sefer. Right. They all, they didn't kiss the Torah, they all stood six feet uh, away, they said the bracha, and did not touch, or no, you don't approach me, I was the only one without a mask. It's very difficult to lane for 50 minutes, right. that's what it took me, right. to read Matot Masay, um, we tweet a mask, but uh, nobody goes closer than six feet to the safe. You know, you have access to a lot of personal protective equipment. Would a face shield be sufficient for a Balcore, or you would say no? No, I would say it should be sufficient. Oh, it's it not be. sufficient only for someone who is really getting close right. to a patient with COVID-19. Because a school teacher said to me, in, in the hopes of going back to teaching in September, uh, they said that they will certainly wear a mask when appropriate, obviously, especially if they have a conversation with a student. But to lecture, they think a face shield should be, should be sufficient to protect them and to protect others. And it sounds like you likely agree with that. Yeah, I do, especially if the lecturer really stands right. even more than six feet apart from his listener. Professor Alevi, always a delight to speak with you, a tzom kal, and I look forward, Bezrat Hashem, to speaking with you in Jerusalem very soon, please God. Likewise, likewise. You're always welcome, Rachel. I appreciate it. Be well. Professor Yonatan Alevi, President, Shari Tzedek Medical Center. He's amazing, as are all our friends at Shari Tzedek, and this is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio, around the world, the web, at NachumSingle.com, and the NachumSingle Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. We're going to go to Rabbi Wine's lecture on wealth, position, and accomplishment from his series, The United States and Its Jews. Remember, Friday, tomorrow, Steve Adelsberg in the 8 o'clock hour about baseball's opening day. Friday, it'll be um, right my father's Hespit of the Lubavitcher Rebbe delivered on the 3rd of Av 26 years ago. We'll broadcast that Friday in the 7 o'clock hour. Ellie Beer next week from United Hatzali. You know that he survived COVID. Uh, Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. And uh, you could also go to Artscroll.com. All Rabbi Wine titles are now 15% off and free shipping if you use promo code radio during this uh, period of the nine days in honor of our relationship with Art Scroll and with Ray Wine and the Destiny Foundation. And um, it's Rosh Chodesh. Keep that in mind. Today is Rosh Chodesh Menachemah, first day of the nine days. Rabbi Wine's lecture on wealth, position, and accomplishment from the series, The United States and Its Jews. You are listening to JM in the AM. So last week I discussed with you the original waves of... Jewish immigration to the United States, colonial times in the 1840s, and then finally beginning in the 1870s, the great wave of immigration from Central and Eastern Europe, uh, which uh, brought two and a half million Jews to the United States. The great turning point in the beginning of the 20th century, not only for the world, but for the Jewish people, was uh, World War I, First World War. Uh, 
even till today, uh, in many parts in England and in France, uh, it's called the Great War. Because there never was a war like it before in human history. It was a war that consumed uh, over 20 million people. And it was a war that destroyed all of the established empires that existed in Europe. And it was a war that uh, 250,000 Jews approximately died in that war. Most of them civilians. But there were great Jewish losses in the German army. Over 12,500 Jews died fighting for the fatherland. There were uh, Jews in the French army, Jews in the British army, and at the end, Jews in the American army, many Jews in the American army. And uh, the war upset everything. And the war brought about the communist revolution in Russia and converted it to the Soviet Union. Our Jews were very prominent in that revolution. That has to be remembered. Uh, and it had the consequences. And it had consequences in the United States. And because of this destruction throughout Europe, all the yeshivas were forced into exile or closed. The Hasidic courts were disbanded. The whole Jewish infrastructure was completely wiped out. And you had new countries that became independent. Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Finland, for a period of time, Ukraine. The common denominator in all the new countries was anti-Semitism. It was a fierce nationalism, and because they were afraid that all the Jews were Bolsheviks, so it doesn't take much to fan the flames of anti-Semitism, which are always simmering below the surface. And when things happen, then all of a sudden, uh, they burst into flame. Now, the great uh, victor in the war was the United States. It suffered the least. The war was not fought on its territory. Um, Britain lost 900,000 men were killed, a whole generation. France lost 4 million men killed. Germany lost 5 million men killed. And then you had Russia and all of the other countries, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So uh, those people who were stuck in Europe, the Europeans, uh, a great percentage of them wanted to leave. 
They had enough of Europe. And America turned isolationist. Uh, Woodrow Wilson could not convince the United States to join the League of Nations. Uh, America had 180,000 dead from the war. It was not interested in Europe. It was not interested in helping Europe. It was not interested in Europeans. But American from 1919 to 1924, the United States had an open door. There were no immigration restrictions. So therefore, a very large number of people from Italy and Sicily came to the United States. A very large number of Poles came to the United States. People from all over Europe came. And this initiated this second great wave of immigration of Jews to the United States, especially Eastern European Jews. In 1919, there was a Secretary of State in the United States by the name of Palmer, who was a rabid anti-Semite. And you have to realize that anti-Semitism in the United States was open. For a long time, it's been very clandestine. And now it's becoming, again, more open. But it always was there. But it wasn't government. Now, he uh, initiated what he called the Red Scare. The Western world was deathly afraid of the Bolshevik Revolution. And the Bolsheviks advertised that they're going to spread the revolution throughout the world. And they said they're the wave of the future. And in the United States, there was a portion of the population that was very leftist, was anarchist. They brought that over from Europe. And the Jews in the United States were viewed as being communists. So when the Red Scare began, I mean, the, the Jewish Daily Forward had on its masthead, Workers of the World Unite. It published on Shabbos. And it was the Bible for the Yiddish-speaking Jews in the United States. And Jews somehow, because of the fact that we were always trained to respect the holiness of words and of books, Jews regarded newspapers as being holy. That still exists till our time, right? You've got to have the New York Times. I can't go to work without reading the New York Times. The New York Times is holy. So too, uh, there was a Jewish communist newspaper in the United States called the Freiheit, Freedom. Now the communists co-opted all of the nice words that existed in the language. They were progressive, 
Their enemies were reactionary. The word itself defines already the person. They're forward-looking. They're the wave of the future. They're utopia. In fact, uh, you say someone is conservative. That's not the very popular way to describe anybody. Liberal, wow. Positive word. Progressive is even a more positive word. The left had the genius of always co-opting the positive message, even though it itself was regressive, totalitarian, dictatorial, and murderous. So because of the Red Scare, by 1924, uh, Congress passed a restrictive immigration law. Now the law did not say no Jews, but the law put a quota of how many immigrants would be allowed from certain countries in the world. Now, all of this is familiar to us, right? We're, in our time, uh, we've passed through this or are passing through it. It's always a problem. The areas that were limited in immigration were areas where Jews lived. Poland, the Baltic states, certainly the Soviet Union, Central Europe, they had very small quotas. And that was to prevent the fact that without those quotas, maybe another million, million and a half Jews would have come to the United States. People say, well, why didn't they come? Why didn't they leave? The answer is there was nowhere they could leave to. You have to have somewhere that you can leave to. Someone to let you in. So uh, a large Jewish population in Eastern Europe is bottled up. There's nowhere they can go. Now, 50,000 a year went to America. So 50,000 a year would uh, add up to a half a million. But that left uh, millions and millions and millions of Jews in Eastern Europe. Now, in the Orthodox world, as I began to explain last week, uh, there was great opposition to any type of immigration. We'll say, well, why didn't they go to Palestine? The uh, Balfour Declaration was enforced then. Britain had no quota until 1926. There was no quota at all. Anybody could come to Palestine. As late as 1929, it still was easy to get certificates to come. Well, how could they come to Palestine when Palestine was being run by the leftists? When it was secular to the core, it was anti-religious to the core. And they couldn't go to the United States because the United States not only was the golden in Medina, it was the trafe in Medina. So where are they going to go? 
So they tried to rebuild themselves in Eastern Europe. Not with very great success. Uh, in the 1930s, 70% of all Jewish children in Poland went either to Catholic or public schools. All the legends that are circulating, and all the books and all the magazine articles and how wonderful it was back then. It was heaven, right? People were poor, but they were happy. They loved it. It was a Jewish life. That's all baloney. It was terrible. Jews faced rampant anti-Semitism that was violent. And Jews got pulled off of trains in Poland and were beaten up or were killed. Nobody ever went to jail in Lithuania for killing a Jew. And they were poor. And a great many of them were radicalized. And therefore they were tired uh, with the label of being Bolsheviks. So in the United States, when this second wave came, uh, they came to a very difficult society. A society that did not accept them, that was suspicious of them, and generally was anti-immigrant, and certainly anti-Jewish. Now, in the United States, after the First World War, the First World War was a traumatic experience for the United States. So, in the United States, there was an organization called the Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan was founded in the South after the American Civil War. After the American Civil War, for a period of eight years, the Republican government and uh, Andrew Johnson, who was impeached, and then uh, Ulysses Grant, who was the great Civil War hero, but was a very corrupt president. I mean, if you look at American history, uh, you know, you're not so nervous about what's going on, because uh, the country should have fallen apart long ago. And somehow, you know, we survive it. Uh, so uh, this uh, group, mainly composed of southern veterans of the Confederate Army, uh, the Republicans attempted, uh, they called it Reconstruction. And Reconstruction was they were going to force civil rights on the population. So uh, there were uh, uh, former Negro slaves that became senators in the United States Senate because they arranged the vote in such a way that that's what had to happen. This caused a tremendous reaction against it. 
again, uh, it's very hard to reform a country socially from the top down. We have that experience, and the United States is going through that experience as well. And they formed this group called the Ku Klux Klan. And the uh, object of the group originally was to terrorize the former slaves so that they would not feel that they were full citizens, they would have no rights, and to segregate them. That was called Jim Crow. And this, uh, from 1870 till 1960s, was how America was. It was segregated and uh, there were lynchings. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan marched through the streets. They wore hoods and all sorts of costumes. They burned crosses on the lawn. Uh, their leader was called the Grand Dragon. And they were very, very popular. And they had a lot of followers. And they were very active in the 1920s and 1930s. They expanded their horizon. Not only were they against the blacks, they became anti-Catholic as well, which basically was anti-Irish and anti-Italian because they were against foreigners. And then uh, the golden nugget fell into their lap. Uh, they, they, were, they were the leaders against the Jews. Now Jews lived throughout the United States. They lived in the South. Jews had fought with the Confederates on behalf of the Southern states. The uh, Secretary of State for the Confederacy was Judah P. Benjamin. And the Jews were prominent in uh, Confederate politics and office. But that didn't help them. It never helps you. And especially now that Jews were seen to be communists, Jews were seen to be leftists and the whole country. Uh, I mean, uh, I lived through the McCarthy era in the 1950s and it was really uh, frightening. And Jews then also hunkered down and had a low profile because all the atomic spies were Jews who spied for Russia. And Trotsky said it very well. Trotsky's real name was Bronstein. So he said, Trotsky makes the revolution, but Bronstein pays the price. So in the 1920s, the Jews in the United States were faced with very difficult problems. So they used a number of avenues to try and get out of these problems. 
One avenue was to become more like the American Christians and less like the Eastern European Jews. So in the United States, for instance, the Reformed temples had services on Sunday, but they were closed on Saturday. I remember even when I was growing up, the Temple Shalom on Lakeshore Drive, which was the biggest and fanciest Reformed temple in Chicago, had services only on Sunday. Temple Emmanuel was the organ of the choir. We're going to be just like everybody else. We have to somehow lose our identity. If we lose our identity, nobody will know who we are, and they'll leave us alone, and we'll be able to be successful here. The second way was the American public school. How the American public school preached integration, the melting pot, but the melting pot was Christian civilization. It was the celebration of Christmas and New Year's and Easter. You never got off for the Jewish holidays. It was anti-American. I remember yet uh, when I went to public school in the 1940s, it still was that way. And even though uh, our school on the west side of Chicago had a 98% Jewish population. Christmas was Christmas, and Easter was Easter. Rosh Hashanah, there was school, and if you didn't show up, the teacher, because most of the teachers were not Jewish at all, far from it, and they would, uh, how come you missed two days? And then they would say, uh, but there are other Jews in the class and they came which always happened and you had no good answer for that <coughs> it's what Paro said you're lazy every, year, every, year, every month you have another holiday so there was a great pressure to become somehow American. And becoming American meant going to school, going to school when they wanted you to go to school, and under conditions that they wanted you to go to school. And there were no Jewish schools. There were afternoon Hebrew schools, which everyone hated attending. Because after you're done with public school at three in the afternoon, to go sit for another three hours and in the Hebrew school was not very attractive. So there developed in the 1920s, and it carried over for almost a century, uh, the industry called bar mitzvah. There was a tacit agreement. You go to the afternoon school if you're a boy. Girls were free completely. That was the first of women's lib. They didn't have to go at all. But the boys had to go until they were bar mitzvah. 
and the last two years in the afternoon school was to prepare you for bar mitzvah. And preparation for bar mitzvah then was uh, to be able to uh, read the Haftorah in Hebrew and to deliver a speech. You know, the famous today I am a man, today I am a fountain pen speech. And uh, it became a rite of passage. But after Bar Mitzvah, you were free. You could do whatever you want. Uh, so for many, uh, many people put on film once in their lifetime. And then they put the film back in the drawer. So that was the second problem. No, the school couldn't do it. Because there were no schools. And there were no people uh, stubborn enough to try and create them. And basically the Jewish community was not yet wealthy. And to create uh, a school system, you need money. And lots of money. The third way that Jews integrated in the 1920s was through the media. Jews somehow, the field that they pioneered in the United States and that they were most successful in and most influential in was the entertainment industry. The Jews uh, became the owners of radio. Now, uh, in our time, radio exists, but uh, its role is far different. In my time, radio meant that you sat down with the family at, uh, after supper, and until 9 or 10 o'clock, you listened to the radio. That was American. And the radio stations were controlled by Jews. So you had William Paley, who was the son of a cigar maker from Philadelphia, and the name was Paley, and it became Paley. So he created the CBS, Columbia Broadcasting System Network. And then you had uh, Colonel Sarnoff, who created the National Broadcasting System, NBC. Against the Jewish networks, there were two networks. One was called the Mutual Broadcasting Network, which uh, was uh, pretty much uh, openly anti-Jewish. They, for instance, uh, the anti-Semitic priest from Detroit, Father Coglin, so he had a radio program every Sunday. He had millions of listeners, and it was pure anti-Semitism. On the radio, and they was on the mutual broadcasting system. And then there were other media outlets that were uh, against the immigrants and against the Jews. But what happened was that the Jewish radio outlets portrayed an America that did not exist. They portrayed an America the way they dreamt that it should exist. 
So they had all sorts of interesting programs. They had Jewish comedians and uh, Jewish entertainers. And the Jews were always in the entertainment business. We're going to get to the movies in a minute. But uh, the Jewish theater was alive and well. And many of the great actors in the Jewish theater later went on to become great actors in Hollywood as well, at Paul Muni and others. And uh, you had uh, great uh, chazonim, great cantors. Now in our time, um, cantors have had a revival somewhat, especially here in Israel. But in the United States, they had Yossel Rosenblatt. Yossel Rosenblatt made movies. He performed at the Metropolitan Opera. And he was an observant Jew. He has descendants that are rabbis in America. And you had all sorts of, you had Moshe Oisher, and they, they were all famous. But they were famous not as chazonim, but as entertainers. And uh, therefore you had people like Al Jolson, uh, who uh, began as a chazan, but was an entertainer, and then a, a big star. You know, Al Jolson is buried, there's a cemetery in Los Angeles called Forest Lawn. It's one of the tourist sites. For instance, there's a guy there that want to be buried in his car. He had a rolls. So he's buried in his car vertically. And there are other such outlandish things there. But one of the things, Jolson is buried there. And Jolson has a record, a recording of him singing Kol Nidre all the time. The movie industry was completely dominated by Jews. And they were the ones that really changed American culture. And they created, again, an imaginary America. An America where everything is good and everybody is lovable. And things are wonderful. And they created it and they made a fortune on it and they spread it. And it became the great uh, American export to the world. So that the world thought that that's what America was. And you had Jewish songwriters like Irving Berlin and uh, Cole Porter and others who created Tin Pan Alley. And all of those songs were to promote America. God bless America. That's a Jewish creation. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas as, a, as Jewish. The Jews did it. 
And the non-Jewish world in the United States was not unaware of this. And again, from the beginning, all Jewish media was basically leftist. Now, there was a time when people believed in socialism and communism. They really thought it was going to work. And they looked at the inequalities that existed in American society. And every society has inequalities because we're not all the same and we don't all have the same talents and abilities. And they wanted to correct it. And therefore the movies became a propaganda instrument about fearless people fighting for rights, fighting for equality, and fighting for these dreams. Now, in the 1920s, uh, most of America didn't have electricity yet. The uh, farmlands were all lit by fire, by uh, lanterns. So the media became based on the two coasts in the United States, which was where the majority of Jews eventually ended up. New York was very Jewish, and to a certain extent, the Jews were the ones that pushed California. Hollywood moved to California, the movie industry. And uh, it's not accidental that that still exists in the United States today. You have uh, uh, the uh, coast, the East Coast and the West Coast are of one political view. And then the whole center of the country is of a different political view. So that was the third way, through entertainment. And, you know, and there were stars, Eddie Cantor, and then later Jack Benny, and these are all Jewish comedians. Now, the tradition of Jewish comedians lasted till our time. I mean, Seinfeld is all Jewish jokes. It's all the jokes that were on the Borscht Belt, refined and put into a different setting, but that's what it is. And the Jewish comedy writers, the ones who wrote the jokes, were the ones that were involved in all the shows. But it was a, an absolute requirement that you were going to sit up and listen to the radio. Now, my, uh, my father, a blessed memory, wanted to listen to the radio because he wanted to improve his English. He became an excellent orator in English, taught himself English, took a correspondence school course because he saw that the membership in the shul, the Yiddish-speaking membership was evaporating and that he had to speak to, the, uh, to a different generation. But many of the older rabbis were unable to do that. And therefore, they became dinosaurs. Even though they were great Torah scholars, 
and great leaders, but they were irrelevant to the growing American Jewish community. Then the Great Depression occurred. Just as the First World War was a traumatic event, especially for Europe, the Great Depression was a traumatic experience that left its mark on American society almost till our day. And uh, you're talking about 30% uh, of American workers had no jobs. There was no unemployment insurance. There's no social security. There's no safety net. What were the causes of the Great Depression? I took a course once in college, and I came to the conclusion that nobody knew what the causes were. Because had they known what the causes were, perhaps they could have prevented it. And economics and the wave of economics, uh, boom and bust, all uh, really are mysterious even to the experts. So because of the Depression, people felt that capitalism was a bust. And the Soviet Union looked more and more attractive. And the Jewish Communist Party in the United States grew exponentially because it said it had the solution. Now, Stalin was a murderer, but nobody knew it, or nobody admitted it. Stalin, at the end of the 1920s, started his collectivization program. He starved five million people in the Ukraine to death, purposely. They confiscated every kernel of grain. Nobody knew it. The New York Times wrote about uh, Stalin, that he was, uh, he was the greatest person in the world. Russia was the wave of the future. The guy that wrote uh, that covered uh, Russia f for the New York Times, I forgot his name, Walter Durant, right? So he won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on Russia. It wasn't even fake news, it was beyond fake news. All made up. But that was the impression. And the Jews bought into it. And a lot of religious Jews bought into it. I remember my father's shul in Chicago. There were a lot of communists. They came to Daven in the morning, but they were all committed to the fact that the Soviet Union was right. Because the Depression destroyed families, people. It was So I, I, you know, like we, I don't know how to describe it, but when you grow up and you don't have, so that's different than when you grow up and you do have. So I look at my grandchildren and great-grandchildren and they lack, Baruch Hashem, nothing. So therefore, they're picky eaters. They don't like this toy. This dress is not nice enough. 
And if they lose their winter coat, so you buy another one. I come from a generation, I always said it, that we wore the same hat and the same tie from the time we were bar mitzvah to the wedding. And if you lost your overcoat, then you were cold in the Chicago winter, and that was it. And my wife, uh, Jackie, bless her memory, so she grew up in that time too. She was in Europe yet, so she knew what poverty was. And we would wonder together. I had a class for young boys, Shabbos afternoon in my home. I had it for 20 years in Muncie. One class was for third, fourth, and fifth, and the next class was sixth, seventh, and eighth. At the end of the class, I would give each one a candy. That was the... So I had guys that cheat, they stayed for the second class too to get another candy. At the end of the season, I had a collection in my closet, 30, 40 overcoats, jackets. Jackie would say, don't they have any parents? I mean, when a kid comes home without his overcoat, yeah, no problem. He comes up without his overcoat, buy him another overcoat. And we don't want to... I, I remember once I made the announcement in shul that I have a collection of, I think, 32 overcoats a size this to this to this. And uh, if the rightful owners will uh, step forward, I'll be glad to give it to them. And a guy stood up in the back and said, Rabbi, keep them. They're all for you. (laughs) But in the Depression, you couldn't say that. I found out later that in the Depression, uh, we had a grocery man. I remember his name was Lightman. Fine Jew, was a member of my father's shul. He was closed on Shabbos. That's a, so in the Depression, he would give my mother an extra, you know, piece of bread, a loaf of bread. Not charge her. Because he didn't want that the rabbi shouldn't have. And to us, that was a treasure. We didn't even know that. And the Depression lasted until the war, Second World War began. It was only the Second World War that boosted America out of the Depression. And the fable is that the New Deal did it, but the New Deal didn't do it. The Depression continued throughout the 1930s. And it had a serious effect on American Jewry. It turned it left. And it made people very, very uncertain. You couldn't, you know. So nobody owned a home. Nobody aspired to own a home. And you were at the mercy of the landlord. And whether he gave you heat in the winter or not was always questionable. 
But that's the way it was. That's the way we grew up. Now, because of all of this, I don't know how to put this nicely, but the Jewish people don't react well to such long-term adversity. They look, nobody does. We look for a way out. And uh, many people blamed all of this on the fact that the Jews were old-fashioned. They didn't integrate. They held on to their own ways. And so uh, traditional Judaism was, uh, to a great extent, uh, felt to be completely irrelevant to American Jewish life. It could be the immigrants that came over from Europe, they still hung on to it because they had no choice. They were too old to change their ways, but their children and grandchildren were not interested. We're not going to go for it. And orthodoxy had no tools to be able to deal with it. You could speak against the American public school system all day and all night, but the end of the day is you have to send your child to school. You have to send them to the public school. Where are they going to go? And so uh, and then you had the Ku Klux Klan on your head. And then uh, the Messiah arrived, Franklin Roosevelt. Now, Roosevelt did not solve the Depression, but he spoke as though he did. And he uh, had a flurry of governmental activities, make work jobs, all sorts of things. And the Jewish people became Roosevelt's acolytes in every respect. He was God. He could do no wrong. Whether or not his policies worked or didn't work made no difference. And it's interesting, the Democratic Party then was the party of the anti-Semites. You had the senators from Mississippi, Eastland and Bilbo, and you had others that were openly and that made anti-Semitic speeches on the floor of the United States Senate, and they were the supporters of Roosevelt, and the Jews were the supporters of Roosevelt. All of this is not enough. In 1933, Hitler comes to power. Now, everybody thought that Hitler was a passing phenomenon. Couldn't last. He was a ludicrous figure. Everybody realized he was a madman, and you know, nothing's going to be. But they were wrong. And in the United States, there was a very strong, large German American population and concentrated in cities like Milwaukee and Chicago but throughout many urban areas. And the German-American community uh, created uh, parties, political parties, 
that basically supported Hitler. It was called the German-American Bund. They, I, I, I remember it as a child. There was a rally in the Chicago Stadium. The, the head of the German-American Bund, a man by the name of Fritz Kuhn, he got up and spoke. It was like Hitler, except he spoke in English. And they had Nazi armbands, and they marched with the Nazi flags in the street. And it was all, you know, it's freedom of assembly. You can say whatever you want. Freedom of speech. And the Jewish community really felt threatened. And then on top of it, uh, the uh, uh, one of my earliest memories is our family listening to Hitler's rants on the radio. And my parents would weep, and I, I didn't understand what was going on. That was six or seven. I didn't know what the problem was. And who was this guy that was screaming in a language that I didn't know? And once in a while I heard a word because I knew Yiddish, and I would say to my father, is he Jewish? <laughs> and one of the earliest English words that I ever learned was affidavit. Because in the house they kept on talking. My father worked to get affidavits to bring over his family from Lithuania to the United States. And in order to get in the immigration, you had to find them a job and it was all sorts of things. And you needed all these affidavits and I know what an affidavit was, but he never was able to bring them over. And naturally they perished. And uh, this story was repeated thousands of times. And I remember uh, there was a, a, f a friend of our family who was an illegal immigrant. Somehow he got into the United States. Now all of his life, you know, he when he saw a policeman, he ran the other way. He lived a life of terror. So it was not a hospitable society. It had a lot of problems. But the Jews in America realized that they're better off being in America than if they would be in Europe. That much they understood. In uh, 1929, the great Rosh Yeshiva, Rabbi Shimon Shkot, who was the Rosh Yeshiva in Grodne, came to Yeshiva Srebrenia Yitzchak Hanan, the Reitz in New York, for two years to deliver lectures in Talmud. And my father was one of his students. So in 1929, Rabbi Shkot told my father, you should know Europe is oisgespielt. That was his word. Europe is all played out. He said the future is either here or in the land of Israel, but Europe is done. And Chochamodif Minovi, a wise man is greater than a prophet, and he was unfortunately completely correct.
So uh, American Jewry had grown, like four and a half million Jews in America, and America then didn't have 300 million people, had only 120 million people. So uh, the Jews were 3% of the population, and the Jewish vote meant something. Today the Jewish vote is minuscule. There are more Muslims in America than Jews. But uh, the Jews in America hoped for the best and trusted in Roosevelt. And so next time we'll discuss what happened in the late 1930s and the Second World War and its immediate aftermath, which really changed the face of American Jewry completely. Pretty amazing. Lectures brought by Burl Wine. This series is incredible. The United States and its Jews. You hear how timely it is. You hear how up-to-date it is. Uh, this specific lecture is entitled Wealth, Position, and Accomplishment. And um, really remarkable. Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Uh, Art Scroll is offering 15% off this week on all Rabbi Barrel Wine titles. If you use promo code RADIO, keep that in mind. Also, 10% off across the board on everything at artscroll.com with promo code RADIO. And don't forget to pre-order your Danielle Renoff uh, brand-new cookbook, Peas, Love, and Carrots, the cookbook. If you order it today at artscroll.com, you'll have it in your hands before Tishabov, based on what Rabbi Gedalia Zlotowicz told us. And also, if you order it online, at artscroll.com, you'll get the free tote bag that's being uh, given away with the uh, book. So keep that in mind. This portion of NSN programming brought to you by our friends at A&H. Abel's and Hyman Kosher Hot Dog Sausage and Deli is the world's best and available at every Trader Joe's nationwide. Try A&H today. Everybody out there, if you haven't yet supported our uh, fundraiser for 2020, please do so. Uh, we've demonstrated again today as we switch to a, a nine-days format uh, just how incredible our programming is. If you don't receive our daily thread, let Avrami know. AF at NahumSiegel.com. AF at NahumSiegel.com. Achenu Yisrael and Achim brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NahumSiegel.com and the NahumSiegel Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. Wraps up a great Wednesday, Rosh Chodesh, here at JM and the AM. Plenty tomorrow including a conversation about a brand-new yeshiva that is opening up and a conversation with Steve Adelsberg about baseball's opening day. He's got the Jewish take on it. <laughs> i got to give him credit. He's got the Jewish take on it. We'll talk about it tomorrow. Had, of course, our wide's lectures and plenty more in our nine days format. Have a fabulous Wednesday. Rosh Chodesh. Till tomorrow, Nachum Sigal reminding you, remember to pass, live the present, and trust the future.